Are you all ready to up your drinking game? Absinthe Minded AZ is a pretty freaking amazing and super rare company. Absinthe is truly an acquired taste type of drink. People like Picasso, Hemingway, and Van Gogh were known to throw back a few. I mean, The Raven may have never been written if Edgar Allan Poe wasn't drinking this stuff. Who, by the way, was an artilleryman in the United States Army. Go Redlegs. This misunderstood spirit became legal again in the United States in 2007. And now you can try it for yourself here in AZ. Plus, co-owners Doc Ordovich and Justin Slusher are pretty cool dudes. Absence Minded is produced with 100% natural herbs based off of traditional formulations with variations to accommodate the palates of the modern drinker. Pour, sip, and enjoy. So if you want to find out more about this amazing company, go to their Facebook page or AbsenthemindedAZ.com. And their Instagram page is pretty dope. Um, where are you off to? I'm going to check out Alien Donuts. They are a funky, hip donut concept with planetary beats and out-of-this-world treats. They have vegan, gluten-free, classics, specialty, and space-themed donuts. Yum. What else do they got? They also offer nitro brew coffee, rocket shakes, and freshly made ice cream. And how can I find them, Crystal? Well, they are located in the heart of Old Town Scottsdale on 5th Avenue. You can also find them on Facebook, Instagram, or AlienDonuts.com. Donut Stop Believing! What you drinking? My favorite drink ever. Pistachio blended brew with a coffee base and a little extra shot of caffeine from Sweet's Cold Brew Coffee Company. Gotta get ready for that show, Crystal. And did you know that Sweet's Cold Brew is the first and only cold brew coffee shop in the state of Arizona? It's for rad people only. I'm rad. The only thing that would make them better is if they sold beer and wine. Funny you should say that. Just check out their menu at sweetsbrew.com. That's sweets with a Z in the middle. Uh, they also got an awesome Instagram page. Mmm, Catino Sauce Company has the sexiest, hottest, hot... Uh, <clears throat> no, no, that's all wrong. Hold on. Coutinho is the sexiest, hottest, hot, hot sauce. Damn it. That's all wrong. What no. are you doing? Trying to record this ad for Coutinho Sauce Company. Coutinho? You mean the best damn hot sauce on the planet with tons of flavors like jalapeno, habanero, chipotle, verde, and all kinds of others I can't pronounce. They also have amazing limited flavors like mango and blueberry. Yep, that's it. My favorite is Ghost. It makes my butt burn. <laughs> you gotta act fast though, because they're always selling out of that one. Okay. Just visit CatinoSauce.com for more flavors and customized bundles. Also, go ahead and follow them on Instagram and Facebook. My homeboy and CEO of Catino Sauce Company, Jacob, will appreciate that. Sweet Stash is a home-baked business specializing in cake pops, brownies, cakes, and more. Celebrate your special occasions with all of your favorite people. If we're at a party and they have Sweet Stash, I know where Mario will be. Buy the cake pop stand. To place your orders, check them out on Facebook or Instagram. Fall in! All right, all right, everybody take a seat, grab a drink, let's get this show started. We're back, everybody, and uh, today's going to be a really special show. I've got uh, a um, an awesome person here, I'd like to say a friend, but uh, 
I mean, I guess we are. We're 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 Facebook friends. We we knew each other a little bit in the past. Uh, I was uh, uh, stationed at your camp. I guess you can say it like that at Camp Buka. Um, I do. Oh, have it was a, our camp. Huh? Yeah, our camp. It, it was our camp. I do have a story uh, that I will tell later on on how we met because I'm pretty sure you don't know. With uh, you know, you had uh, a few hundred thousand. Not a few hundred thousand, a few hundred or a thousand. I don't know exactly how many people were under your command at that time, but you had plenty of people, and I'm sure you weren't looking out for every little private that was running around. So, um, but uh, as a, as a young private, uh, you know, and actually, I think I was a I was a PFC, and I turned specialist while I was stationed in Iraq at Camp Buka. Uh, but anyways, so the E4 Mafia that was uh, running around at Camp Buka, uh, they knew who you were, right? So. Uh, but we'll get into that uh, later on. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you guys uh, Colonel uh, Austin Schmidt. And uh, am I saying that correctly? Yes, you are. Perfect. That's what it is. Now, in your... In your I've, been uh, called, I've been called other things, though. But <laughs> uh, a, lo- a lot worse, right? Haven't we all? Yeah. <laughs> so well, well, what do you want me to... I'll, I'll say uh, Colonel Austin Schmidt. What do you go by these days, sir? I'm, I'm Austin is great. Big Bird, what the heck? That's what you guys Big knew Bird. me as at, at Bruca. Yeah, I like that yeah. name. Let's do. Let's go with Big Bird over here. So, um, you were in the military. You joined in 1968. Uh, retired yep. as as a colonel. Uh, specialties yep. were included. Uh, specialty 18 Alpha, which is Special Forces. Uh, other specialties included uh, 11 Alpha, Infantry, 35 Delta, we got 38 Alpha, Civil Affairs, 42 Bravo, Human Resources, 49 Alpha, Operations Resources. And I'm literally just going to go through a quick list here and then I'll let you explain how you got started and, you know, more of the of the history behind all of that. So you were in the U.S. Military Academy, Preparatory School, Ranger Qualification Course, Infantry Course. Airborne Qualified Special Forces Qualification Corps Special Forces Underwater Operations Combat Diver Course Special Weapons Basic Course Jump Master Qualification Course uh, You were also a Nuclear, Chemical, Biological uh, and the Warfare Course uh, Let me see Atomic Demolition Munitions Officer Course Military Personnel Officers Course Military Intelligence Officers Course Infantry Officers Course, uh, Instructor Training Development Course, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College Command Courses. Um, obviously, you have an extensive background, and you know I say all that stuff, you know, not because I, I know you're you're a humble man. I, I've, like I said, I don't know you in person that well. We met a few times, but I've followed you on Facebook, and I and I know from the things you've written, the way you you carry yourself, the way you speak, that you know you you're a humble man because these aren't the things that you shout out, you know, to, um, you know, to to everybody you meet, you know. But this is your biography. I asked you for this. Uh, but it is important to understand like that's that's a it's a very extensive background with a man who has a lot of knowledge and in obviously all things military. So uh, without further ado, why don't we uh, get into your your history then? I, I kind of talked about the, the things you've 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 done or the courses you've been to. But um, what drove you to join the military in the first place? Well, um, I'm, I'm glad to be here and, and, and pleased and proud to serve and all that. And so, uh, my old man was in the Navy, <clears throat> excuse me, and, um, grew up in a military family. 
And uh, my, my grandfather had served in World War One as an infantry officer. Uh, and, and I've got my family history traced back, as far as I know, to, to uh, about 1638 in Boston, where my, my ninth great-grandfather was, uh, was an original member of, the, uh, of what is now the ancient Honorable Artillery Company of Massachusetts. So we, the, the, family, the family military history in the country goes back to at least 1638. And, uh, you know, growing up in the Navy, uh, I, I, when, I, when I joined the Army, I was 18 years old and had 18 addresses to write down. So we moved around a lot. And, and it was, I was comfortable in, in the military. And um, so it was kind of the, the family line of work. Every generation has served, although not, not necessarily as, as a uh, profession. But uh, my old man was, he definitely served, he served, what, 26 years in the Navy. And uh, so when it when it came time for me to be 18 and graduated from high school, uh, I, I freely and fully admit that uh, my grades were, were not attractive to any college that, <laughs> where I might have hidden from, like, the draft. And it was 1968, and I was 18 years old, out of high school. So I said, look, let's make this official. And... Uh, uh, so I enlisted to be an infantryman and, uh, got down to Fort Benning and, and, uh, at that time, and I don't know what they do nowadays cause I'm kind of old. This is ancient history, but, uh, kind of, kind of tongue in cheek. They smiled, you know, the, the NCOs down at Benning smiled at me and said, well, where would you like to serve? And I said, all right. I said to myself, self, it's, um, 1968 we're fighting vietnam i've just enlisted to be an infantryman so let's let's take the pressure off the army i said well, i'll go to vietnam and they said oh good check the box and uh, uh the army had different plans for me though uh because what i did was i everybody in my my unit my training unit kept taking tests and, and assessments and things like that and, and uh at the end of the couple of days of doing this stuff there were two or three of us in the room still together and, and everybody else had gone back to the barracks. And, uh, they, they told me that, gee, you, you qualify to, uh, to go to NCO, what, what we called shake and bake back then, which was kind of a NCO, uh, uh, candidate school where you start off as a private and, 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 you know, after your training and they'd run you through these NCO courses. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping they didn't make you a sergeant right away, but at least made you a corporal. Right. And I looked at him. I said, "Look, I'm not ready to get to get a, a squad of uh, infantrymen killed. You know, I'm I'm 18 years old. What do I know? I haven't even been there yet. You want to run me through this NCO course?" And they said, "Oh, oh okay. Well, well, how about OCS?" And I said, "Wait a minute. That allows me to get 42 people <laughs> killed at 18 years old." Yeah. <laughs> and I said, "I said, no, nah, I don't think so." So I they said. Okay, so they kept offering me options, and, and it, was, it was like they were trying to keep me out of Vietnam. And so I said, okay. And finally, they offered me the uh, the uh, military academy preparatory school, and I said, okay, all right, all right. If I have to take something, I'll take that. And what that is, that's a course of instruction for, basically for people like me who uh, didn't have really decent grades, uh, you know, and our academic background was a little bit flaky, but uh, for some reason, the Army saw some potential in me, and it's a year of instruction or nine months of instruction. And uh, 
you you take uh, two math classes and two English classes every day, and what they do is they they try to teach you enough math and English so that you can get decent college board scores as well as uh, get you ready to go to West Point and and hopefully uh, graduate from there. And uh, I didn't. I <laughs> I uh, I went to West Point for about 21 months, and I proved that I was not an engineer. And uh, at the end of that time, the Army told me that uh, I was uh, free and clear to go seek my education elsewhere at my own expense. So I went down to the Citadel and sold myself to the Citadel, which is the military college of South Carolina. And uh, they, they were, they were kind of sucking wind on getting people who actually wanted to go there back then. I think we had 1500 cadets in the, in the whole Corps, And, uh, but they were happy to see me and they were happy to take my GI bill. And uh, I, uh, got an army scholarship besides. So graduated from the Citadel in, in 1974 and uh, with a commission in uh, infantry, which is all I wanted to do. And I never, there's a thing about West Point was back then it was all engineering. Oh, and uh, I never, I, you know, I, I, I never understood why I had to know the moment of inertia of a 45 kilogram cylinder rolling down a 23 degree plane, uh, which was uh, five miles long or whatever. <laughs> yeah. When, when, all I needed to do was know how to, to direct my, my you know, platoons of infantrymen right. and, and, and get the fire in the right place and call for fires from artillery if I needed to. Yes. So I got a history degree from the Citadel, and uh, which you know stood me in good stead because everywhere I seemed to go in the Army, I, I said, oh, I understand the history of this place or that place or the other place. And so that was great, but the engineering totally escaped me. And... Uh, so uh, I had gone to ranger school uh, prior to my graduation from the Citadel. And uh, so I was ranger qualified. And after graduation and after my officer basic course, I went to jump school. So now I was the big bad airborne ranger and on the way to Korea. And the Army, another thing is the Army wanted me to go to Berlin. They really wanted me to serve in the Berlin Brigade. Because back then I, was, I, I hadn't had as many parachute jumps and I was still six feet tall. And uh, had my airborne wings and my Ranger tab and my infantry on my collar, and and the uh, the Army wanted me to go to Berlin and serve the Berlin Brigade and guard that last poor stinking Nazi in Spandau Prison. And I, I told him, I said, look, what am I going to learn? You know, how am I going to learn to develop to be an infantry platoon leader in Berlin? We're we're, we're you know okay, we're behind the enemy lines, but. Um, uh, how am I going to develop there when, when I could be developing my field skills in Korea? Cause you know, having served as a private made it all, made it all the way to PFC, I knew that, uh, I needed to develop my skills. So I had some credibility with my troops because having been a troop, you know, every time some shave tail came and stood in front of my platoon, I said, all right, what does this asshole know? Yeah. Uh, pardon my friends, <laughs> but you know, I was I was skeptical of of shave tails, you know, second lieutenant butter bars. Yeah, this is a and veteran. I, I this is a that, veteran friendly show, so you can cuss all you want. Okay, <laughs> but I, I figured if if I didn't have some some street cred, you know, standing up in front of a bunch of troops, you know, wow, I've got this big bad yellow bar on my collar, but but I have I have nothing to back it up. So, I went to Korea and uh, had a weapons platoon for uh, for six months. And back then, weapons platoon was heavy weapons platoon. So in my light infantry company, 
we had 81 millimeter mortars and we had the first uh jeep mounted toes you know the uh tube launched optically guided uh oh, yep. anti-tank missiles so we had the first toes in korea which were awarded to me and i don't know why they gave them to me because like i say i am not an engineer but they gave me this technical machine to work with and so we were guarding the uh, Trowan Valley invasion route into Seoul, and uh, that was our 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 war fighting position. And uh, so did that for six months, and then I got a new company commander, and he decided that he wanted me to be a light infantry platoon leader with the Crunchies on the line. And so I got a light infantry platoon. So I'm out there on patrol, whereas for the first six months I was overwatching them with my mortars and my. Uh, my uh, anti-tank rockets there. So did that for six months and uh, then uh, volunteer for special forces coming out of Korea and, and was selected and went to uh, special forces training at Fort Bragg in 76 because 1975 was my, uh, was my uh, year in Korea. And so 76, I, I went special forces, went to Bragg and Charlie Beckwith kicked my butt all over Fort Bragg. And he seemed to enjoy that. And I seemed to enjoy having him kick my butt. That's funny. And then I reported to, to uh, 3rd Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group at Fort Devens, Massachusetts in May of 76 after my special forces training. And uh, I, was, I was assigned as an XO of an A-team, Operational Detachment Alpha, and uh, then uh, when I, you know, my atomic demolitions job came in there where uh, we had a little, basically a rough sack nuke device that uh, certain of us were, were allowed to play with. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, about that. So this is the, the atomic demolition uh, munitions officer course that you went to? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, back then, both sides, both, both us and the Soviets, had had uh, little little atomic bombs. What they were were they were actually the uh, the, the warhead of a uh, artillery projectile, atomic artillery right. projectile, and uh, they they rigged them up so that we could we could transport them. One man could transport them. I'll tell you what it was it was a bit of a booger, but uh, it could be done. I I proved that, and uh, my detachment commander had uh, had decided he had been the the uh, the SADM, S-A-D-M is what we call the SADM. He'd been the, the detachment commander as well as the SADM officer in the, on the team. And uh, he looked at me and said, ah, fresh meat here. This is yours you now. Yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, thank you, Master May. I have another. So, and then when I took over the team, when, when he moved on to a, a staff position, I just kept that job. And, and I, I truly loved it because every, everybody from, from the president on down worried about my bowel movements and my, my home life and, and everything else, because, uh, you know, when, once they let us loose with this thing, uh, there was very little contact with us. And, uh, we had tactical targets that we had, we, we were, we had identified on our target list, but it was all part of the big strategic game just in case the Soviets came across the line and came through the folded gap back then. And like I say, the bad guys had the same stuff in a different version. Right. So you know, we had to we, we we were trained to look out for them, and they were trained to look out for us. But yeah, I did that, and uh, then I became a staff officer. And uh, but I loved special forces; it was great. 
the conventional army doesn't think much of us even today because we we do tend to think on our own and and go out and make shit up as we go along and uh show flexibility in that department we don't always go by the approved book solution and and of course that that makes the conventional guys crazy because they're trying like like mad to stick with the conventional solution but um but uh, they get in trouble if they make shit up and right. nobody knows nobody knows we're making shit up because nobody's watching nobody, us that close to and nobody the knows guys. yeah nobody knows exactly what you're supposed to be doing anyways so i mean besides that's you guys, right that's right you guys. so one we're of the there. one of the things that you know yeah. and, and i'm sure you're a history buff too but during world war Two, one of the biggest frustrations especially with the the germans was that um even though our even our conventional armies didn't always necessarily follow our own rule books um i i i don't know exactly who who said this but the uh, the german officers one of their frustrations that they would often say was that the americans have guidelines they have a rule book but they often change it like at the last minute so it's very hard to fight the americans so it's funny that you you mentioned that because that 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 has always kind of been our way i mean since the beginning right since our founding fathers since the revolution we weren't fighting a conventional um uh a war essentially um and we definitely would not have been able to have won our freedom uh from you know the 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 british because you know we could never have fought their war that way so i i, I always feel like americans have always had that kind of that that extra spark where you trust the individual the young soldier, and I know you've met thousands of young soldiers, you know, you know, that's the one thing is that we are we are free to the core. Right. Even in the military where we have rules and, and guidelines and I get it, you know, without that, there's chaos in war. But if you can still manage the chaos during a gunfight, right, during combat, um, you will probably come out the victor because war is chaos. Right. So if you can't strive, if you can't live in that chaos, um, <clears throat> then, then you're not going to make it. So I've always thought that was something special. The American soldiers, uh, even the conventional military has always had that, that the individual kind of think, even though we are, uh, military, one military, um, we've always had those commanders like yourself, you know, who kind of thought outside the box and, and kind of did things just a little bit their own way. That's right. Well, you know, everybody's seen band of brothers and, and that was, that's a an outstanding series and it shows how these guys developed from a bunch of conscripts in world war ii you know who were stuck into the army because they got called up on the draft and uh although you know yes yes there are rule books and things like that once these guys were were let out over france on d-day and the morning of you know hey they were on their own and and you saw how 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 flexible and, and, and innovative they were when they were scattered all over Normandy. And they said, well, well, shit, what do we do? And, and a more conventional bunch of people might've sat down and said, well, we have to wait for orders. But these right. guys said, screw that. Let's go out and kill something. Right. Right. You know? With, within the so. boundaries, right. If you give a, a, you give soldiers a mission, you give, um, you give them a mission, uh, you give them boundaries, guidelines, they follow those boundaries. They follow those guidelines. Um, they can do amazing things, right? I think it takes a special leader to trust the young men and women underneath them and trust the training that they've given them that if they send them out there, 
with these minimum, you know, rules and guidelines that they will do the right thing and get the job done. And th that's the thing I, uh, I believe in special forces that you guys train so much that that it's it's easy to trust each other because you know what you've been through. Right. Whereas in conventional military uh, or army, you know, you, everyone's trains a little bit different. Right. Uh, not everybody is is 100 percent trained. Sometimes you get new guys that just come in and I got deployed within six months of uh, not even within three months of graduating basic training. You know, uh, luckily we did about six months of training at Fort Hood. But essentially, you know, I mean, you got some pretty fresh people who've only been doing this, you know, less than a year, sometimes thrown into combat. So uh, whereas, whereas special forces guys, I mean, you guys are all pretty high ranking, right? Training, you know, what, 12 hours a day, 18 hours a day, sometimes depending on the missions, things like that. And so um, I don't know. I, I, that's that's the one thing I admire about our, our military is we have so many different ways of, of thinking, so many different ways of attacking the enemy, um, you know, small groups, larger groups. I mean, you you name it. Air, our Air Force is the best. Our Navy is the best. So um, I know. But I digress. So I do have a question because you'd mentioned uh, during your special forces time that you conducted a covert operation against the Red Brigade in Italy. Uh, after they murdered yes. the former, uh, what is it, uh, premier of that country, Aldo yeah. Moro? Can you explain on that? Yeah. Yeah, Aldo Moro was a retired premier of Italy, and the way the, the Italian government is set up, it, it's a parliamentarian government, so they have they have prime ministers, which this this term premier um, equates to that. So he was the, the former prime minister of Italy, and the Red Brigades back then, it was an offshoot, offshoot of, of all kinds of terrorist groups. But they were the guys down in Italy who were causing trouble and trying to uh, uh, destabilize the um, uh, democratic government of Italy. And because democracy is defined different ways in different places. But, you know, Italy's got a democrat, democratic government. They, they vote, you know, direct elections, things like that. But the uh, the Reds were always trying to destabilize these Western democracies or Eastern democracies, for that matter. But in Italy, this bunch of bunch of crazy terrorists had kidnapped and murdered uh, the retired uh, prime minister slash premier of Italy, Aldo Moro. And um, we we set this up as a training mission where we went in and we assisted the Italian special forces. And, and with because we had we had some some abilities that they simply didn't have because of their budget. And uh, so we went in and uh, worked with the Italian Special Forces and the Italian Special Forces snuck up on on the murderers and, and made them null and void. And uh, we got to uh, to get a little credit. We all got Italian jump wings, which was cool because we jumped in with them. And uh, and but they did the job, and we we no no American fingerprints on any of the active part of the uh, the operation. <laughs> I which like was the way exactly you say that. The yes. way we wanted, right? Yeah, we we wanted it that way. We wanted the Italians to to do the thing, and and uh, but we were there just in case. And uh, like I say, we we were able to give them some uh, assistance in areas that they simply didn't have the ability to do because of their military budget. So. That was that was a lot of fun. It was very interesting, and and the weather was great. <laughs> that's always that's always perfect because uh, normally the weather doesn't cooperate with any military mission. You got that for some <laughs> for some reason. That's that's the one thing. Uh, no matter what, we cannot control. So, um, just like being out in the range all day, right? 
Uh, I remember. That's right. I remember one time being on the range uh, all day, all day. We're talking twelve hours, and um, I think one one group got to go and and shoot because it was raining. There was lightning, and so they kept canceling, canceling. So we literally just sat out there for for twelve hours, um, not doing anything. So that was probably one of the uh the the most frustrating well there's been a lot in the military i spent 11 years i mean you spent almost 30 years in so i'm sure you've got some some stories but that's the way it is you know safety first obviously but um that's the one thing you learn as as a as a young soldier you know is the hurry up and wait game so get out there that's but, right you know yes. you, you never know what you're going to be doing so <laughs> always be prepared always be prepared and whatever that means you know bring your 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 cold weather gear your rain gear um, you know, little, little snack, you know, uh, just in case the, you get caught up in, in the weather, anything else, you know, hurry up and wait is, is the biggest lesson I ever learned. People ask me nowadays, how come, how come you're so patient? You know, um, I'm a manager for a pretty large company and, you know, I've got, you know, over 120 employees and, you know, one of the things I always say, you're so patient, you know, with all these different situations, you know, and I'm like, yeah, well, I kind of, I kind of learned the, the hard way, you know, in the military. So um speaking of uh special forces and getting your italian jump wings too just a quick question that popped into my head um how would you compare the american special forces groups versus other countries because i know you've been all over the world um who are the 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 better ones the cooler ones the ones not so good not so prepared well uh we're we're good because we have we have a, a, a big pool of people to draw from and and you know you got to be a little bit loony to, to even think about doing special forces anyway so we have the right mindset and, and there is there is an actual psychological battery that uh, people who volunteer for special forces go through and uh, and, and they're, they're looking to see how well you play with others uh which is a big part of it because our job is to win the hearts and minds of some indigenous bunch of uh guerrillas who we want to support to uh to uh, destabilize the government in country x so we we do that now i'm sure other countries do the same sort of thing because you know sf has got no matter where you are in, in whatever country there are there are some basics that you go through and, and you got to work on to become a the developer of a guerrilla band, if you will, of, of soldiers who are trying to do your will or your, your government's will against the, the government of this country that you are now inserted into. Um, I think all the folks in all the special forces are, are probably if if they were if they're all stuck in the same unit, it wouldn't take long for everybody to equalize. Uh, a lot of it deals with budgets. Mm, yes. Um, you know, national budgets because most countries don't have the military budget we have. And you know, like with our issues with with NATO, where we're trying to get them convinced that they really need to spend the amount of money on their military that they agreed to under the NATO uh, rules, you know, with 2.3% or whatever it is of their GDP. And we spend it, we spend it very well. Um, but like I said, when we were working with the Italians, they were great guys. They were absolutely marvelous troops, but 
their military budget didn't allow them to have all the sexy shit that we had, oh, you yeah. know, intel gathering and things <laughs> like that. So yeah. they were they were kind of constrained in that department. Excuse <clears throat> me. And um, so I think that if now, of course, there's going to be countries, God bless them, uh, that, uh, you know, they like to wear a lot of patches on their uniforms and God knows what level of training they went through. But, uh, you know, okay, there they are, and that's that's who we get to work with. Um, but I, I, think, I think, by and large, most of these guys, they're in that kind of unit because they want to do that kind of work. So given six months or a year, maybe, uh, everybody would become equal because, um, you know, they wouldn't be in that unit if they didn't want to be in that unit. Right. And so, uh, but on, on the get go, if you had to do, you know, toe to toe, um, operations against these other guys, most of them right now, you know, the U S would, would come out very, very well against them if, if they had to go against each other. As of right now, I love it. It's a very, uh, political, uh, politically correct answer. <laughs> Because you're right, the, as in, as individuals, um, you're you could probably take the best of the best from from different countries, and given the right budget, the right training, they would probably be just as good as some of our young men and women. Um, so I that, that's um that's that's interesting. But yeah, I know that there are some some countries are there, like you said, currently as we are right now. You know, um, there's some what is it SAS the the British that's their special forces or the Spesnots are the Russian special forces so I don't know now is some of that training are do you guys sometimes um, combine the training as far as uh, like do joint operations uh, on occasion uh, that's that's kind of rare uh, we'll go to their school and they'll come to our school oh got it funny. <laughs> But as far as operating with them, uh, see, uh, the way we're set up is, you know, we got a 12-man A team, and, and they're out there on their own. And they don't interact with, with foreign, you know, special forces or special operations teams uh, because they're out there doing their own thing based on their government's right. desires and wishes. But outside, outside so of schools and stuff, you guys don't really interact then? No, no, we, we wouldn't because it's it's not like having a combined arms team of, you know, if you got a brigade made up of an Australian uh, battalion and a U.S. battalion and a Japanese battalion who are going on joint maneuvers and things like that to get interoperability and stuff like training. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't we we don't do that uh, because uh, there's there's some stuff that although we appreciate the fact that our allies are out there doing their thing, we don't really want them to know. Yeah. Uh, to watch us do our thing the way we do our thing right give away all the all the secrets um so given that this is september uh and i know one of the things we talked about before uh coming on the the podcast was your experience on september 11th um you yeah. were at the pentagon when on, on i was on that day so do you can you explain a little bit more on on your the events that happened to you Oh yeah, just like it was yesterday. Believe me. Yep, uh, it, it was it was a day like any other uh, until about nine thirty eight, um, uh, and uh, what ha I was in Army War Plans at the time, 
and uh, our our uh, deputy chief was in charge because our chief was was out of town doing something. I'm sure very important, like playing golf or whatever. <laughs> but you know, colonels do yeah. that. Uh, I hear. But uh, Colonel Sylvia Moran was our boss then in war plans, and uh, the the chief's office had a TV in it, and, and Colonel Moran liked to go watch the news in the morning and see what was going on. So she was in there watching the news when they announced this stuff about the twin towers getting hit. And, and, uh, she had watched the airplane go in and hit the first tower. And then she came out and said, Hey, everybody in the office, come in here. Excuse me. Um, so he said, okay, boss said call. So get in there. So we all went in and watched. And by that time, the second plane was hitting the tower. And, uh, I think that was the flight, the LA flight from uh, Boston was the second uh, plane to go in. And my kid brother was supposed to have been on that plane because uh, he, he was the commanding officer of a unit up at uh, 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 an army unit up at uh, Hanscom Air Force Base uh, working with Raytheon on uh, new new missiles and stuff like that. And my kid brother was supposed to be on that airplane going to L.A. for a uh, conference out there, but his commanding general held him back, so he missed the flight, thank God. And... Um, so anyway, we watched the second flight hit the towers, and uh, and uh, I went back, and then then Colonel Moran looked at us and said, "All right, look, this is obviously not a coincidence. So, do we have a plan for this sort of incident happening in the United States of America?" And uh, we were Army War Plans, so we said, "By golly, we better check our safe." So we right. went back, sat down at our desks. And started to pull up uh, our our, uh, our our list of, of war plans and, and reaction plans and operations plans to see what we had that might come might cover something like this. And um, I I had just had time to call my wife uh, and uh, say, Hey, honey, uh, uh, you know uh, we're 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 checking stuff out here based on what was going on because uh, you know I knew she was watching the TV too. So and. Uh, and uh, so went back to work, and then uh, we got hit. And and what I assumed was, based on on the position of of my uh, office and down this corridor, there was a helicopter pad, which everybody's seen in in the movies about the uh, the strike on the Pentagon. Everybody's seen the chopper pad and the little squat tower out there, which used to control the helicopter landings, comings and goings in the Pentagon. Well. I assumed after after I recovered myself that uh, a chopper had pancaked in on at the end of the corridor, and that's what knocked us all down. Because so I got knocked out of my chair. You didn't think it was an airplane? No, no, no. no. We does. had no idea what it was. Because, um, like I say, we we'd watched the second plane go in, and we got we got to work looking up to see if there's a plan to cover this right. this incident in New York. We. The, the farthest thing from our minds, I think, was was oh shit, we may be a target right. too. And and you know, at right then and there, the, you know, the guys down in the basement of the Pentagon, they were listening to all this air traffic and crap like that because that's their job in the Army Operations Center, and the Air Force Operations Center, and the Navy Operations Center. You know, they were they were monitoring this sort of stuff, the intel and junk. But we're up here in Army War Plans, and we don't have comms with anybody except a telephone. So we weren't even considering that we could be a target. And um, so I, I just, I, you know, we got hit. I got knocked out of my chair. And I, I may have been unconscious for a mini second there because it was a little fuzzy, but 
okay, blam, something happened. And the uh, the alarm system went off and said, oh, my God, we got a problem here in the Pentagon. And they said, okay, we know that. And um, I sat my chair back up, sat down in it. I just had time to call my wife and uh, say, honey, we've been hit. And then the phone lines burned through. And so, uh, you know, this it wasn't just the folks in the Pentagon who are dealing with this situation. you got to think about the families at home who are watching the TV or whose husband just called the wife and said, Hey honey, we've been hit. And then all of a sudden comms are yeah. dead. Lights go, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean that, that she, she had a, a not good day. Um, because uh, cell phones didn't work. They shut that down immediately because the Intel guys had figured out that the bad guys were using cell phones to communicate. And, uh, so all of a sudden everybody's cell phone went dead and, uh, mine included, so our phone lines were burned through in the Pentagon, so we had no communications. But uh, Colonel Moran said, all right, all right, let's go through the drill. We know what we're supposed to do when we evacuate. And because uh, the uh, loudspeaker system was telling us to evacuate, there is a fire in the building. Evacuate. And I said, okay, wow. And, but it was interesting. I noticed that the sprinkler system didn't go off. So I said, hmm, okay, if we have a fire in the place, why isn't the sprinkler system going off? Well, the sprinkler system wasn't going off because the airplane had uh, had burst the uh, the water pipes. So oh, the sprinkler right. system wasn't going to work because right. all the water was draining into the basement. So, you know, we went through our normal, I mean, whatever normal is, our drill, we, and, and the office was very disciplined. We recognized the fact that windows are dangerous places, and one of our armored windows had been cracked. And thank God we were in the part of the Pentagon which had just been refurbished. So we had the Kevlar wrapped around the supports. We had the armored windows and all that sort of stuff. It was very nice before the airplane hit. And um, that's what kept that part of the building from collapsing entirely because we had just been reinforced with the new part of it. So we, we went through our drill. You know, we were, we were kind of duck walking around the place so we didn't get hit by flying glass. And there wasn't any, thank God because the windows were, were solid, but they, they did give way. Um, and uh, we took our classified bricks out of our computers and, and put them in our, our classified safes and locked them up. And, you know, there was absolutely no panic. It was just we were moving with a purpose, but we did what we were supposed to do. And uh, then Colonel Moran said, look, once you've finished what you're doing, we're going to evacuate because that's what the orders say, evacuate. So we, we all, and, and our XO had, had run and, and uh, checked the fire escape door, and he touched it just like he's supposed to, and it was very, very hot because we were on the floor directly above where the airplane struck. So I was on the third, we were on the third floor, and, and the airplane hit the second floor and went through the G1 office. And a lot of my buds down the G1 office, who I'd served with for many years, including the the command sergeant, the, the sergeant major of the uh, Army G1, Larry Strickland, he'd been killed because he'd been in the G1's office when the plane went right through that office. And uh, I'd served with him uh, years before in Germany and served with a whole bunch of the folks down there in the G1 office, and that, that really hurt because uh, they all went uh, out. And, uh, yuck, that was bad. But I didn't know that at the time. At the time, you know, we were we were fighting our own little battle there on the third floor directly above it. So uh, we were told to evacuate, and, and by golly, we did. And as I'm going down the hallway there in the Pentagon, down the corridors, and then into the A-ring, 
to head for the emergency exit, um, I looked around. I said, hey, there's some people who should be in this little blob I'm in who are not here. So I, I played salmon swimming upstream, went back against the the, uh, the the throng who were trying to get out of the building. And once again, there was no panic. I, I didn't see anybody screaming or shouting or running around with their hair on fire or any of that shit. Uh, everybody was very orderly, and, and they were moving with a purpose and to get out of the building. So, But I went back in to look and see if, if uh, maybe one of my buds and my coworkers uh, hadn't uh, tripped and fallen or, or got locked in an office or some shit like that. And uh, got back in there, and the, the chief of uh, strategy, plans, and policy was just locked, locking the cipher door on our section. That was one of my Citadel classmates. He was uh, Colonel Jim Sykes, who has since passed away, unfortunately. But uh, so I went back in, and, and Jim was locking the door and looked up the hallway, and uh, Brigadier General Carl Eikenberry and uh, Major General Bob Woods uh, – and Carl was my West Point classmate, and Bob Woods had been a year behind me in high school, so I knew both these guys. They're coming down the corridor checking offices, and you know this was a, a brigadier general and a major general. And they were they were coming down the hallway, making sure that all the offices were cleared out and uh, and nobody was left behind. And you know, talk about leadership. These two guys were great. I love them to pieces. And uh, so I ducked down the corridor to check on the offices down there, and the floor opened up, and I made the mistake of breathing in in surprise, and that burned my throat and uh, got damage to my lungs. And I recognized the fact that uh, I was getting uh, debilitated in this situation, and I shouldn't be here anymore unless I wanted to uh, join Larry Strickland and uh, on his way to Valhalla. So... Uh, I bailed out then. I said, I, I'm, I'm becoming combat ineffective. So I, I used some common sense and uh, everything was real quiet in the hallways by then because everybody else had bailed out on our floor anyway. And uh, so I, I went out and made my exit and got out in the parking lot. And uh, Colonel Moran was standing out there in our, in our designated uh, uh, assembly area uh, with, uh, with the team. And, uh, she said, uh, she looked around and she said, I have been waiting for you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as I'm putting out the fires. And I said, Roger, Roger, gotcha, gotcha. But, uh, you know, cause it didn't take me long to get hurt. So, uh, cause the things were really bad on the second floor, which we didn't know at all. We, we, we had no idea what was going on down there, but, uh, she looked around and she said, all right, look here. Uh, they did the one, two on the towers in, 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 uh, New York. And said, we've been hit once, and this is standard. And, and Sylvia was, a, was an MI officer. She was, like I say, crackerjack. She was great. And she said, this is standard terrorist procedure. You hit think, something once, you get everybody to stand around wondering what's going on, then you hit them again. Right. She said, I think there's, there's something else coming in. And uh, we're standing in a parking lot full of uh, internal combustion engine-powered cars, which are full of, you know, with gas tanks full. So she said, all right y'all are dismissed until I call you and tell you what we're going to do. So you're on your own. <laughs> and we said, Roger that Colonel. So we all dispersed to work our own ways to uh, wherever we were going to go. And, uh, I, I walked into Alexandria to my folks house and, uh, stayed there. You know, I, I, I found a telephone, which was working, which was amazing. 
and I called my wife to let her know I was out of the building and on the way to my folks' house in Alexandria. And uh, so I walked into Alexandria because I was walking faster than any car was moving. And, and US-1 was uh, down in Alexandria from the Pentagon. All all lanes were going south. Everybody was on on oh, in the sure, area. But but I I was walking and I was doing better than the cars. So I said, eh, okay, I'm doing the right thing, and I was running on pure adrenaline. It was just you know there there was I was just hyped. And uh, like I say, walked into Alexandria, reported to my folks, uh, sat down, had something to drink, and uh, the old man took me home to Fairfax, my house in Fairfax, about 8 p.m. that night. And I checked with my wife and let her know I was there. And um, safe. And uh, when I got home about eight o'clock that night, you know, after traffic had died down and stuff, sat down in the chair and said, Is my feet hurt? It, because the adrenaline was wearing off. And I took off my shoes and they were burned through. Oh, so, my uh, God. They said, Wow, well, no wonder my feet hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So you had pretty much so, stayed uh, in your boots and your, your uniform the whole day, just kind of. Yep. 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 And, uh, and, uh, so two days later, I had a scheduled appointment to get, I had a broken ankle doing PT a couple of years ago. And uh, I had a scheduled uh, appointment at, at DeWitt Army Hospital for Belvoir to get my ankle reassessed. And um, I, I walked in there and, and uh, I was coughing. And the, the nurse looked at me and said, okay, uh, what you here for? And I tried to tell her I was here to get my ankle assessed, but she said, that's a nasty cough. And she said, get the doctor over here. The doctor looked down my throat and said, when did you stop smoking? And at the time I, I didn't smoke and hadn't. Uh, and uh, I said, well, when I walked out of the Pentagon two days ago <laughs> and the place, the emergency room went to battle stations. I'll tell you what, I was the only Pentagon survivor who showed up down there and they'd been sitting around for two days waiting for a mass casualty event. Yeah. So, I got it all. They said, Whoa, Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got a Pentagon survivor here. Yeah. And, um, they threw me in a wheelchair and threw me on a gurney and ran me into the emergency room. And I had everybody in the hospital down there poking and prodding me and looking down my throat and checking out my limbs and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, the red cross lady came by and gave me a box of candy and a stuffed bear. <laughs> I mean, it was a zoo. So, um, I got, uh, officially, uh, you know, uh, uh, recognized there as a as a Pentagon wounded, and uh, over when the docs looked down my throat, they said it's pretty ugly, and I said, yeah, I agree. And uh, the surgeons looked at it and they they said, you got too much damage for us to do anything about it yet. So they uh, it took a year for the, my uh, throat tissues to stabilize before they could cut out the dead stuff and debride it and, and uh, get my throat working again. So I, I slept uh, sitting up for a year so that the stuff could drain instead of down into my lungs, it would right. drain down into my stomach and take care of that way. And they put me on antibiotics and all that sort of stuff too, but it was still, it was a bit of a booger. And to this day, I can't swallow properly because uh, uh, the uh, the damage to the back of my throat, when they cut out the dead tissue, there wasn't enough tissue to rebuild a, uh, a, a decent uh, seal between my throat and my tongue. So that's another challenge I get to live with. And that's all just from that the the smoke you inhaled during that, that period? Yeah, well, there was all kinds of stuff come up. You know, there was burning mm -hmm. bodies down there. There was burning jet fuel. Sure, there was yeah. burning airplane parts, you know, because 
that aluminum got superheated and it just it burned. Yeah, know? so all Everything that, all that stuff. Yeah. Temperature. <clears throat> and, yeah. So it was. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, not to mention your time in in Iraq and Camp Buka, um, that didn't help. I remember those those burn pits too. That that wasn't. Um, the the safest air to breathe up there either so i'm sure that that didn't help but um so after this because you did retire in 2004 right yeah 2004 time. yep it was they they, they they somebody in, in the army uh staff uh was watching the clock and they said all right schmidt's had 30 years of uh of uh commissioned service now and i had 36 total because i had six years enlisted so uh I, I had 30 years commission service and I wasn't going to be a general. So he said, all right, time for you to go. Bye-bye. So, uh, I, uh, but, but then got my certificate of, got my certificate of attendance and, and said, thank you very much. And walked out the door. And then, uh, 10 months later, uh, got a phone call from, uh, general Bill Brandenburg, who had been a year, a couple of years behind me in high school, but a year ahead of me at the Citadel and he was now the uh, CT of uh, Task Force 134. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, I've been talking to uh, John Abizade, who was General John Abizade, the uh, commander of CENTCOM then. And uh, he said, I've been talking to John Abizade here, and, and, and we think that we need to bring you back on active duty to do a job for us. And I said, Wow, nothing like having two guys who've known you since at least 1969 uh, yeah. decide that uh, you're the man for this job. Yeah, and then ask you, and, hey, uh, can you, you, you uh, ask you for a little favor? That's especially someone you know so closely, yeah. right? It's kind of like, eh, it's the military, but it's also us. We're we're kind of asking, yeah. so it's a little harder to to turn that down. Yeah, but you know, when your friends call you up and ask you to come come fight a war with you you say okay yeah well, i'm not doing anything else so why not yeah 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 yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm 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 a little bored here so yeah what do you guys need yeah so that's when um so yeah walk through walk through that you they call you up that was did they ask you to be that what you were going to do exactly at that time or did they tell you no. what you would be doing or you just kind of said that we need you no, they they just said that they'd feed me all the bacon I could eat, but uh, no, no, nobody. They they didn't say what they wanted me to do. They just said we have a job we we need we think we need you to come do and help us with, and uh, didn't tell me what it was, but it didn't matter to me. I said okay, if you guys need me, I'm here. Right. So, uh, so my wife helped pack my bags, and she said, "All right, this is the last one you get to do on my watch." You understand? I said, "Yes, dear." Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you go play. So, uh, yeah, because let's go play one more time, one more time. But this is it. No more. I said, yes, dear. All right. Gotcha. And the only reason she let me go was because she trusted John Havisage, Bill Brandenburg, to uh, not get me hurt too bad this time. So, yeah, I I, uh, I, I went through all the, uh, the, the, the mobilization stuff you go through and it was rather amusing though because here's a guy with 36 years in uniform and and they decided i needed to be re-greened so they sent me to a two-week transition course at fort sill where i guess i was supposed to learn how to jump out of trucks and salute and and march in formation again oh that's fine and uh then they, then they sent me to the uh replacement center down at fort bliss which was really cool because that was another two-week course, and finally John Abizade got tired of waiting for his, his 
colonel to show up. So he called him up and said, hey, I want this guy on the next plane. I was out, I was out on the ranch. Oh, my dog's awake. I was out on the ranch having a good time busting caps. And the sergeant major of the replacement battalion came out and said, hey, sir, uh, we got to get you on the next plane here. And I said, that works for me. I've been trying to get there for two months. Right. And um, so I went back in and, and the, uh, the battalion commander of this replacement battalion was, was very upset. She looked at me and said, you know, Colonel, no one's ever gotten out of the second week of training here. And, <laughs> and I had to laugh at her and I said, shit me. I'm not getting out of anything. I'm going into a war. Yeah, no kidding, and, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And as a matter of fact, when when I when we were lining up to uh, to to get our uh, our assignments, uh, you know, going going getting on the next plane, I ran into a buddy of mine, Sam Rubin, who I had been enlisted with in 1968, uh, and hadn't seen this guy since I think since 1970, but Sam Rubin was a colonel in the, uh, he's a psychologist, uh, psychologist in the Oregon national guard. And Sam was going to Iraq too on the same plane. So, you know, there's a guy I haven't seen in 30 years and, uh, and we're, we've been enlisted together and now we're going to war together. And that just tickled the shit out of me. I'll tell you what. Was he going to Buka so, as well so, or somewhere else? No, no, he was he was going to uh, he was going to a, one of the fobs up north to be their their shrink, and uh, so I didn't I didn't see him again after we got off the plane in uh, in um, Kuwait. <clears throat> Excuse me. So got on the plane and uh, and uh, showed up there in in Iraq and well, we went to Kuwait and then and we waited for our names to be called off in, in uh, down in Kuwait to go into Iraq got in there and uh, reported to Bill Brandenburg and uh, he uh, he said okay I want you to go out to uh, Abu Ghraib and, and look at that for a couple of days I said Roger that sir so I went out to Abu and spent a couple of days out there with the gang there. And this was right after they'd been attacked. So they were still tidying up and getting things organized. But uh, that was a pretty depressing place. I got to admit, that was that was not, not a pleasant place to be. So went back into uh, Baghdad from Abu Ghraib. And uh, General Brandenburg looked at me and says, well, what do you think about Abu Ghraib? And I said, ah, boy, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? Yeah. He said, okay, I got another deal for you here then. He said, get your stuff. And I said, how much of it? And he said, all of it. And I said, okay, all of it. So I went and got all my stuff, which was six duffel bags worth of junk. They'd given me six pair of boots. I said, God, I don't think I've had six pair of boots my whole 30 years for a career yeah. in the Army. There were different times, I'll say that, because I remember even us, we got a ton of boots, uh, yeah. uniform, everything, everything. We got it. Yeah, I was very pleased, but I had to carry all this crap around. Yeah, no, that's like the other thing, yes. <laughs> not like in the British Army where they give you a servant, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we got we got in, in, in uh, General Brandenburg's uh, little private plane there, and uh, we flew and we flew and we flew and we flew, and then we uh, landed at, uh, gosh, what was it, the British uh, air base there near Basra, and... Um, Shiba, that's what it was. And uh, we got in the chopper there and we flew out and we did a loop over the Kuwaiti frontier 
after flying over Buka, because I was I was looking down, I was looking at this stuff, see what's down there, because I like to do that, recon, and uh, looped back and uh, landed to Buka, and uh, got off, and and uh, Brandenburg introduced me to the staff, kind of looked at me and basically said, "All right, you're in command here. Don't break anything." And he got back in his chopper and left. Just left you there. But. Uh, Oh uh, yeah, but uh, it it was cool. I was okay. I'm in command of this thing, so hmm, what have I got? And uh, had a great staff. It was guys out of the 102nd uh, Massachusetts Field Artillery, the National Guard guys, and a uh, bunch of great guys. But I I think, you know, and what we were was, you were a member of the cleanup crew too. All of us were members of the cleanup crew after Abu Ghraib and the scandal there. Right, right. Because that that was just awful what happened up there. They had a they had a brigadier general who was supposed to be in command of all that stuff, and for some reason she was intimidated by this goddamn military intelligence colonel who told her she couldn't go places. You know, and 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 the the whole place just devolved in, into a you know a, a, a weekend at Bernie's basically right yeah you know everybody was just doing their own damn thing yep yeah and that's why you know i got the staff together and the, the commanders and whatnot and i just said look i need to know everything yesterday the good news can wait you tell me the bad news sooner than you know it because because we're here to reestablish america's credibility and we have got to do this right we have got to treat these people with respect and dignity Although, yeah, they're they're theoretically the enemy, we don't want to make it worse than it is. And that's what they've done at Abu with, with this stupidity going on up there. I said, you know, we got we got orders that we're supposed to follow. Let's follow the orders. Let's do what we're supposed to do. If we need to make adjustments, then fine. I'll let headquarters know we need to make adjustments and, and they'll they'll tell us what we can do and what we can't do. Uh but, but I said, there's going to be no messing around nonsense here because, I, you know, I love my soldiers too much to put them in danger. And I said, we're not going to do anything stupid, that's for sure. We're not going to lose anybody for a stupid reason. And, you know, I had Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps guys there, gals. Yeah. We had Navy dog handlers who were females who were very effective, by the way, because, you know, the Muslims, they look down on women to begin with. And dogs are, are, are not considered pets or, or useful, basically, under the Koran. They can, you know, a, a Muslim shepherd can have a dog to guard his flock, but that's, 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 that's about as far it. as it goes. So for me to have a, a female military police or, or Navy, you know, Navy, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, not dog sure handlers. Control, but mastered arms. Mastered arms. There it is. All right. Uh, Navy female master at arms um, uh, dog handler was was really great psychological warfare, and and I I loved it. It was great. And of course, I had my army dogs there, and they were they were super. Jeez, that was uh, Jose Aguirre, I think. He was the canine chief uh, when I first got there. Oh, really? That's uh, that's funny. Yeah. I um, the, he's got my the same last name as me. Um, I remember. Yeah, yeah, he, I, rem- I remember the 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 housing, I guess, for these, the, the dogs. Cause I remember us yeah. walking, walking by these 
and going, yeah. man, these dogs live better than us. They had some nice little tents yeah. with real good AC. I mean, they, but yeah, those well, dogs well, were more expensive than, than probably what it costs to train us. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so we got it. Well, we that, was, that, it. Was, that was, that was, that was Jose's uh, initiative. He wanted to have the, uh, the little rest places at the, at the various guard posts for the dogs because you, you, you know, it was over 150 degrees oh, yeah. down there. And, and I said, this is a great idea. You betcha. We, let's do this. And we made it happen. And I'll tell you what, um, the, the, our, um, our contract officers, our, our military uh, contracting officers who worked between us and, and the KBR guys who are the civilian contractors down there, they were magicians. As a matter of fact, uh, Susie Quelan was was the second contracting officer we had down there. She's now Brigadier General. Oh wow! She she she's magnificent. Yep, she's a Brigadier General, and uh, and and you know, I mean, she she worked for it. There's nothing given to her, but she made well. All of them made wonderful things happen. Uh, Matt Hirsch, he retired as a commander from the Navy who, by the way, commanded Camp Lamonier or whatever it is down in Djibouti. He, he, after Buka, he went home and then came back and commanded the, the, the uh, logistics base in Djibouti. But all these, all these logistics officers who managed our contracts and worked with uh, KBR to make things happen, they were magnificent. And the, the dog uh, rest areas was part of that. And, uh, Shoot that mess hall we had that served those magnificent meals, that was under the contract with KBR, and you know, I mean, that was, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I I couldn't believe the chow I was getting. Well, it was a far cry from that first little little dinky ass uh, uh, the, company mess hall yes. that I, I had at Fort Benning. You know, well, I was going to say be, before you got there, I think because you got there mid two thousand five, I believe, right in Buka. Yeah, uh, early, early. Two, I got there about uh, end of March, early April, okay. I think it was. Yeah. So yeah. before that nice chow hall, because Buka is one of those weird places where it wasn't the most developed uh, base compared to, you know, other other areas in uh, up north and Baghdad and all that, where they had the Pizza Huts and all this other stuff, right? I think eventually right. we started to get, I think we got that little subway and I think we got like yeah. a little green beans, right? But then the chow hall originally, yeah. when we first got there, it was a, it was a crooked, uh, what do you call it? Uh, pretty much a not, not a tent, but it was a, um, um, a trailer essentially. It was it was a trailer yeah. that was a slightly crooked at first, and then eventually started building up the big one, the 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 huge tent that uh, that's where things got really interesting, and and we were like, we're fancy now. Um, but, yeah. um, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, I can't complain about Buka, but I've definitely been to other places in Iraq where, you know, they were a little bit more developed, more built out. We had our own, you know, individual oh, yeah. shoes and all that. And this one, we, we were still living in tents when we first got there. And then as it developed more and more, you know, we moved into actual buildings and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the trailers and, and so, but we still lived with, you know, eight guys, you know, at a time, which is better than living with a hundred, you know? Uh, in in those yes. large tents, but even us, even as as the young soldiers, we all kind of did our own thing. You know, we build our own walls. We would find pieces of wood anywhere uh, around the base that were just kind of you know trash or just being left behind uh, from the engineers or whatever it was, 
and we would take those pieces and we would build our own rooms. So I know that our little area, we, we ended up breaking it up into um, for instead of instead of living with like 10 people or eight people, you know, the space, we broke it down so that four of us could live in this one little small area it was a little bit more private, you know, so the the ingenuity of the, the young soldier always, you know, astonished me. And it was great to see what what like when you put a team together, what you could do, you know, just to improve your your situations. We're like, well, eight's OK. You know, it's better than 100. But what if we get four of our buddies and we build our own little private area, you know, and then you guys build your own little area uh, without breaking any kind of codes. I'm sure we broke all kinds of uh, regulations by doing that, building those walls and those, you know, separating ourselves. But at the end of the day, everybody was was happy because if that's really all you had when you were out there, I remember we were doing like 12 or 14 hour operations. I was part of the the recon team that was always outside the wire. Um Right. As a matter of fact, yes, you guys were. Yeah, yeah, that that was my nickname. That's where my nickname outside the wire came from, because, you know, my last name is Aguirre. But in the military, you know, nobody could pronounce my my last name. And, um, you know, so everybody would call me Aguirre. And then that yes. nickname stuck because I was always outside. I was never inside. We were always out there patrolling. Um, so it, it just stuck outside the wire. Uh, uh, outside the wire, Aguirre just kind of stuck from from 2005. But um, it was interesting. Uh, definitely, it was it was quiet until it wasn't quiet. Um, yeah. And, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, it was, it was odd because you you never knew what to expect. You could go three or four months without anything, then you'd get a rocket, you know, or you get a mortar. That, yep, and, that's right. Yep. And then obviously, you know, uh, what happened with uh, and you know it's coming up on the the 28th of, of September with uh, Elizabeth Jacobson. Yep. You know. Yep, Liz, Liz, and Steve. And then yeah, followed Steve shortly Maureen. by, yeah, and then Chris uh, Monroe. You know, it just, it just, boy, September sucks. Yeah, yeah. it did. And and they they were all from different units too. Were all I know that Steve uh, Sergeant Morin uh, and Elizabeth A One C Jacobson. Um, they she was Air Force. He was um, yep. one of our National Guard guys out of Texas. Yep. And because we were all, yeah, we were all combined. We were all combined forces doing. I think they were doing convoys. We were doing the, the the recon operations outside the the base. But I was actually on leave when that happened, and our team ah. had actually been down that route uh, earlier in yes. the day, um, kind of you know yes. clearing, not necessarily clearing, but just you know doing uh, you know patrolling, you know just uh, for visibility. That's right. And um, I don't know the whole story on the convoys, but I know that, you know, the, the, the something happened where the convoy took a little longer than than it should have to get out. And finally, when it went out, you know, the you know, whatever happened, happened, you know, they got hit by by an IED. And, um, you know, the the rest is history. We lost two amazing soldiers. You know, one of them yeah. uh, got, you know, wounded. And, and but um, I was on I was on leave that day and I got the call later on. um you know, maybe the next day and um, was told what happened. And, you know, I, I just could not, it, it, I could not wait to get back to my yeah. guys. I could not wait to get back to, and, you know, I'll admit it, you know, to, it, I was angry, you know, I uh, could not wait to get back and, and take revenge on whoever did this. You know, we, we had heard many stories. It was, you know, the Iraqi police betrayed us. You know, they, you know, they gave out information. They were watching us. They were this. And I was like, we used to help them so much. 
We used to take them cases of water. We used to take them. I talked about the 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 extra pieces of wood that we would find the the garbage on on base and during the winter. We would take it to their little posts with the Iraqi police because uh-huh. they were they didn't their government didn't take care of them, so they had no no, no no heater no nothing. So we would take them wood and and pieces of of trash to just burn so they could at least stay warm yeah. out there. You know we were figuring if we could make them our friends or keep them friendly. They would give us, you know, uh, they would give us uh, information, um, intel, anything like that, you know, and, and also kind of keep us secure because they were, you know, there was three different little Y sections that they were all, you know, monitoring. And we figured, you know, we can't cover all these. And if we keep them friendly or close to us, at least, you know, it might help a little. But so I, I don't know exactly what came of all that. I don't know what intel you got from that and everything. But I do know that, you know. Obviously, we we were hit, and that was one of those rare ones that we were never expecting. That right, that things didn't happen no. down in Buka like this until that day. Yeah. Well, we, as a matter of fact, it had been suggested that uh, the the coalition forces build a road from Navistar to Buka so that we could overwatch the route from from the Navistar uh, convoy collection place. Because there was that nasty ninety degree dog leg in Safwan. Oh yeah. But and and everybody knew it and the bad guys sure knew it. However, it was determined that politically the coalition forces had to show that we trusted the 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 Iraqis to the point where we would drive that dog leg and we should have built that road. I I kind of supported that but i didn't get a good vote on that but yeah they uh if they just built that road right across the desert across the kuwaiti frontier from some from navistar to uh buka i could have overwatched we could have overwatched the whole route for my towers. Yeah. No oh threat. yeah yeah but yeah. no the, the the politicians said you know all these goddamn state department people said no 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 we got to show the iraqis we trust them and we so trust we gotta her, drive yeah. this suicide 90 degree dog leg through yeah. Safwan. and see Safwan was was a sunni enclave you know iraq is a shia muslim majority country but saddam was a sunni and sunni is the majority muslim sect if you will right and um he wasn't stupid he wanted to guard the border he wasn't going to put a bunch of shias down yeah. there who so he put sunnis down might there. not be loyal to him he put his people down there and so when when we went in and, and took the place over uh and and of course the idiot who disbanded the iraqi army should have been shot you know that that american diplomat who who was put in charge of iraq and he disbanded the Iraqi army. He said, "Hell no! You got a force in 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 place. Fact. Yeah, yeah. Leave them alone. For Christ's sake, keep them on the payroll. Now you're paying them, so they're going to be loyal to you because you're giving them the money. Right. But now this idiot Brenner, I think his name was. I can't remember. But anyway, he he he, he you know." disbanded the Iraqi army and sent all these pissed off guys home with no jobs, but they still had their AKs. Right. So, you know, so that's exactly right. See, we were, we were trying to win their hearts and minds. Like you guys were taking the Iraqi police, uh, you know, things that they could be, could use to, to keep themselves alive and fed and whatnot as, as best as possible. And hell, we built three schools out there. 
um, for the Iraqis, and and there's no American fingerprints on it. it you know, I, I told the uh, the local sheikh there that I didn't want that. Don't call this the Colonel Schmidt Elementary School for God's sakes, and don't put an American flag on it. I said, you put your flag on, yeah. you put your face on it. That's fine. But yeah, you know, we cleaned up that little that little children's cemetery there just off post. And uh, we did a lot of hearts and minds stuff. And, uh, you know, eventually we, we had the Iraqi snack bar on post. We, we hired the same team to take down that silly thousand foot aiming stake we had stuck in the middle of the place. <laughs> uh, God, you I know, finally got that damn thing down. That's hilarious. You know that uh, you, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know how far, you know, things went up to you. Uh, as far as when soldiers got in trouble, because I'm sure they're commanders and there's other people that can take care of little petty things. Right. But I had a friend yeah. of mine who was with uh, he was I was with the Texas 36 ID guys. This right. guy, he was with the Virginia um, artillery. Guys. Oh, the 111. Yes. 111 yeah. Virginia Field Artillery. Yeah. But he was he was a medic. He was uh, he was a younger guy, always getting in trouble. He. um and his buddy decided one night to climb that tower. And uh, of course, they got they got caught. You know, uh, you know there were some other things going on. Obviously, why they made that dis- that poor decision to to do that. Uh, and so uh, I don't know if you remember if that ever got to you. I'm sure other people did, but they got up pretty high up there uh, until like our you know on on base security team. You know, which is actually one of my uh ncos um that actually listens to this podcast so sergeant lopez you know what you know that in famous night because he was one of the t- the team members that that got them down and I, I don't know what happened to them after that they took them back to their leadership so i don't know if that ever got to you or anything but yes that tower um was dangerous in more ways than than just one but you're right it was a bullseye i mean it was huge it was it oh was, yeah there was there was a there was a a uh, myth too and i don't know if this is true or not that there was a camera all the way up on top of it that could see everything so they would keep us kind of scared and said if you're out there patrolling like just be careful because they can see you from that from that tower so i don't know if there was i know we did have a, a higher camera that could see outside of the base and certain things and all that but i don't know if it was on top of that tower or not so um, nah, I don't know. No, 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 cam- no camera on the tower. That's just, that's just the troops making line. up stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah, but that's cool. But yeah, I, and, 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 I, I, see, the, and the tower didn't work as a communications tower. So it didn't even work. Yeah, a thousand, no, it didn't. Yeah, a thousand feet of good German steel, and it didn't work. There's some kind of a magnetic anomaly down there um, where, where that tower didn't work. Saddam built that sucker. Yeah. Uh, just just to to try to intimidate the Kuwaitis and say, hey man, look at what I got. So it pretty much but, turned uh, into an aiming post. Yeah, that's it all. was. It was a great aiming stake for the bad guys. That's it. That's that's why that's why they were fairly accurate with their rockets and yeah. mortars and shit. Like and that. and uh, and a place for for dumb privates to to climb and have fun. So, you know. So yeah, and I I did hear <laughs> I did hear about that incident, but. I, I did not ask any more questions. Well, I, I like said, like okay, I said, I, I think you had probably bigger bigger fish to fry than a couple of privates, uh, you know, getting yeah, in well, trouble. I, I guess I haven't haven't been a private myself. Uh, I I just went down the memory lane and said, okay, I'm sure there's a sergeant major and a first sergeant who can handle this just fine. And right. So I didn't get involved, and that's why I, did, I didn't come inspect barracks either. You know, I said, look. Yeah, that's. 
I, I got, I got all these non-commissioned officers and, and junior officers and they know their jobs and I trusted everybody to do their jobs. And so that's why I wasn't going to come in and inspect your barracks to make sure your skivvies were, were folded the right way. You know, right. that's, that's just part of them. And, and I told, I told my leaders, you know, don't fuck with these guys, you know? Okay. Yes. We have to keep good order and discipline. Yes. We have to do it the army way or the air force way or the Marine way or the Navy way or whatever way we're supposed to do it. I said, but let's not be Mickey mouse about this. We're getting shot at the weather conditions suck. We're guarding 8,000 pissed off bad guys. And if we, if we fall asleep because we had, we stayed up all last night getting ready for some silly ass inspection, we're, we're going to have real problems. And so that was, that was my command atmosphere or attitude towards what was going on with, with, and see, we had 1500 to 3000, uh, us forces on post, depending on what was going on. And, uh, and, and when I left, we had 8,000 bad guys locked up in there. So I figured everybody, everybody knows their job. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Everybody knows how to do it because we're all trained. And here we are in this shithole. And it was, you know, when, on the, in the great scheme of things, you know, we were not back home with our feet up on, on, the, right. on the coffee table watching TV and having a beer. And, and at any time, we could have been attacked by a force. And uh, there was a uh, an, an Al-Qaeda force that did come down our peninsula. And uh, Joe Romano, the commander of the uh, – the uh, Air Force, one of the Air Force squadrons, you know, he he was on on the, the emergency blocking team, and he took his guys up. Remember the uh, the uh, pro, uh, well, the natural gas tanks that were you could see from the top of the uh, the, the old Camo shop there at uh, Buka. You could look up the peninsula and see these three great big old uh, natural gas tanks. Right. Well, the bad guys got that far. Joe Romano went up and blocked him with, with his Air Force team, and the Brits had sent out a uh, a couple of tanks from Basra, from uh, Shaiba Base. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, we 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 were we were on the target list. They that, were coming for us. That close. Well, we, we and, always uh, we always felt like we were kind of the training ground for a lot of their their equipment that they would use it on on oh. us first because we were small. We were so far away from anything else. We were out just south, just way out there on our own. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were 300 miles from Baghdad and, you know, the, uh, the Iranians were, were using us too. Uh, cause what they do is they'd come across the Shat al-Arab from yes. Iran yeah. and, you know, in small boats, they'd cross the Al-Fal Peninsula and then they'd cross the Khorazubair right into, uh, Umkasar, and they're all Shias. And, you know, down there, there was a, a mobile population so you got a lot of Persians down there who are, you know, okay, they're Iraqis by nationality, but they're all Persian and they're all Shias by ethnic group and, and religious affiliation. So <clears throat> we had a bunch of, of Iranian um, agents down there who were watching us all the time. And yeah, they would, they would smuggle in the, uh, the uh, parts for the IEDs. And uh, they were assembling them down there in in Umkasar, uh, and they also had an aiming head from a uh, ground-to-air missile down there, at least one, because you remember when when the the uh, 
jets would come up out of the Gulf and fly up over Buka and fly up over Umkasar. And every once in a while, one of them would give us that, that sound and light show with all the, uh, they'd pop all the chaff right. and the, the anti-missile yeah. stuff. Well, that's because this asshole down there in Umkasar would paint them with this uh, aiming head from the, aiming, from the yeah. ground air missile and, and, and set all this shit off. Yeah, they were Iranians down there all the time. And uh, we had a uh, Farsi linguist uh, assigned to us, a good-looking girl. I, I absolutely freely admit it. She was a good-looking <laughs> girl. But, uh, hell, she'd go down there, and uh, she knew who the Iranian agents were. She could smell them. She knew who, exactly who they were. And because she was a woman, hell, they'd tell her everything she wanted to know because yeah, she's just a dumb broad. Oh, and yeah. that was their attitude towards them. And she'd come back and she'd write up her reports of what was going on in Umkasar. And she was also, I mean, she was a Farsi linguist and she was a, you know, she was a Persian by, by ethnic group. And she was Iranian, you know, I, I don't remember if she was Iranian by birth or not. But in any event, she was a fabulous Intel asset. And, you know, she, and she would, uh, she'd use her computer to surf all the Iranian websites and stuff and see what was going on out there. So she knew. So we yeah. had a treasure trove of Minford, and we sent that up to the, the G2 in, in Baghdad. And I don't know what they ever did with it, but you know, there it was. Yeah, Umkasar was a, of course, a, we were, a shitty little town. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was awful. It, was, it smelled. Oh, I mean, they're, 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 they didn't have a sewage system, so all their sewage would be dumped nope. right outside the, the town. Um, That's right. In fact, yeah. when, when we had the new guys come in, we would always take them right to that area where the whenever the yeah. dirt was green or like a aqua blue, you know they had just yes. dumped all their shit right there. And so our guys, the new guys, didn't know that. So we, we, we'd stop our Humvees and we're like, we're we're gonna observe this this little town because we do that often, and uh, we're just yep. gonna report back and see what we see, any kind of movement or anything. Which we got shot at by from that town many times. Never never any kind of gunfights, just one or two pops here and there, just kind of testing yeah. us, see what how we'd react. But we take our new guys yes, out there. Did. Yeah, we take our new guys out there, and they'd walk like, "What is this blue dirt?" I mean, it was dry by then, but it was still <laughs> blue dirt. Like, why are we walking? Well, why they were? We're like, just just go over there and check this little area and let us know what you find. Just make sure you don't find any like, you know, um, RPGs or or mortars because we'd find them all the time on in the desert, just laying there rusting away. And so just look out yeah. for these things, okay? All right. So they'd be walking, scoping. They're like, "Why is this water or why is this dirt blue?" Uh, eventually we tell yes. them, well, you're walking on shit essentially. And so that was kind yes. of our little initiation for the new guys. But, um, yeah, they, we found out that's <laughs> what they would do with their, 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 um, their sewage. They would just come out and dump it, you know, about, you know, 800 meters from, from the town and the kids would be, all be playing around playing soccer in it. And so it was, it was a crazy little town. It was deceptive too, because it was small and you thought they're just poor, uh, people, they just want you know food and water and, and and money, whatever it is. You just want to survive. But then every once in a while, you know yeah. that there was bad guys in there, just sitting you know amongst the amongst the sheep, just uh, waiting for for an opportunity. Do you remember uh, sniper, um, whatever we called it? It was a little small abandoned uh, two story um yeah, building i guess snipe, sniper house. Yeah, sniper yeah, house. Sniper house, right? Yeah, we'd go and check yeah. that place all we, the time. Did Actually, they... we tried to get, we tried to get rid of it. Yes, and we, once we, again, we never did. So, uh, were you able to after we left, or no? Was that no, a no go? No, no, no. Because no. the politicians in the State Department, when he's 
wouldn't let us tear it down because that would show that we didn't trust the Iraqis. That's insane. It was nothing around it. it. Down. Yeah, it was a perfect spot so for them. Well, we, and we didn't trust the Iraqis, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I mean, some of them we did. The right. local shake was cool. But, but yeah, you know, and, and this is, well, this is what I, when I was talking to the shake, I said, hey, how can we reduce the sniper fire and crap like that incoming? And uh, he said, well, this village could use a school. So I said, all right, that's a match made in heaven. All right, let's, let's do this. I said, now, we'll drop the plans, and uh, now we need a construction company to build it. He said, well, I just happen to own a construction company. I said, oh, this oh, is a great deal. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. No, he was a cool guy, though. He was on our side. He he was really really supportive of what we were doing and trying to bring civilization to yeah. uh, to Iraq. But I, uh, I remember, yeah, I mean, you know, this is a heart to mind stuff. Yeah, I remember that was one yeah. of our our our, our biggest missions. Um, but going back to your your style of leadership, because you mentioned how you kind of wanted the the leaders, the the NCOs, to kind of lead the way and and take over you know, making sure we were okay, you know, kind of leave us alone when, when they needed to and, you know, take charge when, when things got, you know, when things got out of hand. Right. And so, but yeah, I can attest to that because you were kind of a, uh, I'm not, I don't know if hands-on is, is the right way, but you were always in the open. You were always available. Uh, you were walking amongst all of us to chow by yourself, um, you were approachable um, every time I ran into you and every time anybody ran into you because you were famous for this. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we, we'd be walking in, in, in the chow hall or whatever, and we, we might give you the, the greeting of, of the day and you'd be like, you know, Hua, you know, and you'd say sometimes you say things like, you know, I like it here. I love it here. I finally found my home. Hua. And we're like, that's amazing. You, <laughs> yeah. You'd say like little cadences, you know, within like three seconds, you like set a whole cadence and I would kind of motivate us too. we're like, that, that's funny coming from a colonel. It's not only funny, it's entertaining, but that's pretty cool. No one else ever greeted us that way to include our own NCOs or things like that. You know, people thought it was cheesy, but coming from a colonel, then you find out you're the, the base commander, like you run this shit. Um, everybody's like, that was pretty cool. And it, it was motivating to, to hear that because you're like, you're right. This is kind of a people forget, right? When they leave basic training, you, you forget the cadences, you forget these motivational things. But at the end of the day, um, they're there for a reason. And especially when you say it out of nowhere, it kind of motivates people and it puts you in a better place to be better to your troops. And then hopefully they're better to their troops. And, and it just kind of it, it turns into this contagious uh, thing that uh, a positive uh, contagious um, atmosphere that you know you could feel around the camp like walking around you know you might not have it might be 120 degrees uh you know maybe the food wasn't great that day whatever but for some reason you're feeling good because you know some colonel just greeted you in the most outrageous and fun way so for that um uh, i don't know if you obviously you did it so you 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 have to remember like those things right you used to do that Oh yeah, uh, but uh, that, that's gratifying because uh, my my two drill sergeants in basic training in 1968, uh, Staff Sergeant Bransford and Sergeant Rich, were my senior and junior drill sergeants, and and I remember those guys to this day, and they were tough. They trained me well, but they were fair, and they treated us with as much respect, I guess, as we deserved. But you know that's that's the way I was brought up, and you know 
of course, my old man being in the Navy, I observed how he treated his subordinates, you know, the guys who, who were in his units and stuff like that. And so I said, well, obviously, this is the way you're supposed to do it. You know, uh, yeah, I'm in charge. I'm responsible. I'm the ultimate authority here because there isn't anybody else. But, you know, I, I never I never I never had a reason to treat anybody badly, if you will, unless they really screwed up and screwed up basically on purpose. Right. And then it was it was just because they'd screwed up, not because of who they were or, or anything else about them. So, you know, that's that's of course that's that's another reason I'm not a general too. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Cause you care, cause you care too much. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes yeah, I you know, I people care about the troops and, and the policies come, come second. But, um, I'll tell you what, you know, the, the people that, that remember you, um, and we're actually going to do, um, probably next weekend. I think, um, I have one of my NCOs that he was an NCO at that time, um, lives here in Phoenix with me too. We're all from originally Texas. But we have a, a yeah. another one, um, Sergeant Lopez, who was there too. He was uh, he's gonna come visit, and so I think we're having a little get together. So I know they listen to the podcast. I know they'll have a good time reminiscing, and I know they have their own stories of you know uh, of running into you, and er- everybody did. You know, it, 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 when before anybody knew, or at least our little group, before we knew who you really were, we're like, hey, you ran into that colonel that kind of greets you with like a really cool way. Like he's always saying some kind of short cadence or something and everyone's like yeah i ran into him this morning we're like yeah that's kind of cool right so it was it was known you also had uh and i don't know if this was right outside your your living quarters or if it was outside your office but you had an area that you said it's a no salute zone and people were just hanging out um if they wanted to come talk you could if you were out there they could come sit next to you yeah. or in the circle and and all kind of hang out and talk um you know people would smoke yeah. cigars yeah. and hang out there that was cool that, too. Yeah, that's right. I I, I established that because I wanted the folks to know that you know, if if you can't figure any way else out to to solve a problem, come sit with me and have a cigar. Yeah, I'm the ultimate authority. If if I can't fix it, then then we're in deep shit. Yeah. So so you know, that's that's why I did that. And like Chris Monroe and I got to know each other very well because he had a cigar with me every chance he got and he wasn't on missions and running convoys and crap like that. Chris was out there in the evening having a smoke. And, and I, I figured this is, this is a great way just for folks to know they can decompress here. There's yeah. no Mickey mouse. There may be Mickey mouse somewhere else around here, but it ain't going to be in this area outside my office. Right. And, and I would see, and that was my decompression time too. Because, because you know, I'd be dealing with this bullshit from Baghdad all day, or the bullshit from the TIF, or the bullshit from wherever it was coming from, and and I needed time to relax. I mean, who am I going to talk to? I can talk to the chaplain, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, I was I was the goddamn colonel. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a, there was no there was no old club or some colonel's club on post for me to go yes, and, and right. vent my spleen with the rest of my fellow colonels because I was I was the only one. So yeah, that was my decompression time too. That's funny. And and I love talking to the troops. And if if I could provide, I mean, I I I've got to admit I spent a lot of money on cigars, but you know for the for you guys. Yeah. But that was, I figured this this is this is common sense. And uh, 
when um, when we got a sergeant major finally, um, Suzanne Rubenstein, because she got uh, uh, basically ejected from uh, Abu Ghraib because she was doing too good a job up there. And uh, they told her to get in the convoy and go to go to Buka, and she showed up. And I said, hi, Sergeant Major. And uh, I said, uh, can I help you? And she said, yeah, I'm looking for a job. And I said, well, damn, I'm looking for a Sergeant Major. This is a match made in heaven again. Yeah. And uh, so so Suzanne would figure out what I was doing. I was talking to the troops at night, you know, you guys and smoking and, and joking and stuff. So she joined us. And so she said, wait a minute, he can't know more than I do. So right. she he oh. started coming out for his smoke too. That's small leader, smart leader. But, well, you know, I, I, and it was just it came natural to me. I, I was I wasn't trying to get G two on on what was going on just by sitting out there with talking to guys yes. and smoking a cigar. It just it just seemed like, hey, you know, this makes some sense. Let's 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 just give everybody a place that they know. There's no Mickey Mouse, and and if they need to call me a motherfucker. Too. That's the time. Because I am, right. you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm the head motherfucker, you know. So yeah. go for it. So go, yeah, go for it. Because there's, there's a, a bunch more that that could be worse. Um, so at the, yeah. at the top of the show, I mentioned uh, I had a story of when I met you. Um, okay. I was in the Chow Hall. I think I was still because I, I mentioned I was a PFC when I first got to Iraq, and I got my, my specialist uh, later on, which. Uh, the rank also has a bird on it. Just just to mention, uh, yes. I think the only two ranks that have a, a, a bird on it, specialist and colonel. So that's why when they say, who runs the military? The specialists run the military, right? Um, the the right. E4 e Mafia, as they, as they call it. But um, I, I believe I was still a PFC, still young to the game. I didn't grow up with a military family. I didn't know a lot of military history. Um, I knew what I knew, right? I became an artilleryman because... My recruiter, uh, when he said, "Hey, well, you know, you 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 qualify for these things. You can be a fueler. You can be, you know, a cook. You can be artillery." And I go, "What's artillery? That sounds interesting." He goes, "You make things go boom, and then and there's a ten thousand dollar bonus." And I said, "I like making things go boom, um, and I like ten thousand dollars. So artillery it is. So I became an artilleryman at Fort Sill. You know, went to basic training, came back. I." Um, Three months later, we got you know, the notice that we were getting deployed, spent six months in Fort Hood, and then, you know, straight to, to Kuwait and Buka. And uh, first time, so, you know, I didn't know much other than my, my MOS. You know, I knew, you know, what, what infantry guys were. I knew, you know, things about the Air Force, the Marines, things like that, but very little about other MOSs, uh, especially uh, a rank, obviously, I knew what rank was. So when I saw you, we were in the chow hall. You were standing next to me in line, just like everybody else, right, by yourself. You didn't have staff around you, anybody else. And I did notice that you were a colonel. And oddly enough, because I wasn't the most outspoken uh, little PFC, but I did look at you and I, I kind of I, I recognized you were a colonel. So I think I may have like nodded to you or said hello. And you were pretty open. You said something. You started talking to me. And uh, that kind of opened me up to ask questions. And uh, I, I think you may have asked me, like, you know, what, what unit I was with, what my job was, all these other things. And I, I got the courage to ask you and say, what is that on your uniform? Which you had two, um, you know, cross arrows. I didn't know at the time, yeah. you know. 
And uh, I was like, oh, that's yeah. that's kind of cool. Of course, I was naive and I was like, what is this guy? He's like an archer or something like that's that's so different. Like I've never <laughs> seen, you know, I know what cross cannons are. That's artillery. Um, I know uh, cross uh, rifles. That's infantry. And maybe I may have seen cross pistols for for uh, MPs. But other than that, I, re- I didn't really know much, especially when it came to colonels or officers, you know, and, and why you had that on your on your on your collar. And you're like, well, that's uh, special forces. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Right. And so we just kind of had a little conversation and in line as we waited for our food and got our food. You went your way. I went my way. And that was that was the end of that. That's how that's how I met you. Right. And then obviously running into you um, out in, in, in between the bays, going to Chow Hall or just walking around. And, and you know, every time you, you greeted us, you know, in that really cool way. Um, those are those are my memories. But that is uh, my memory of of meeting you and kind of, you know, asking a silly question about your, your cross, your cross arrows. I'm glad I didn't say what I thought they were because that would have just come out really, really dumb. But, uh, but those, those thoughts, they go through my head. And afterwards I was like, Oh, okay, that's what it is. So I'll never forget that. But, you know, even, even just talking to you briefly, you know, you learned a few things, you know, uh, you could take away from, from that. And, uh, I think that's important, right. For, for young troops to, to learn stuff because a lot of times people don't spend the time and and teach them, even if it's just a two or three second, you know, um, you know, quick answer, you know, most people, uh, especially higher ranking don't have the time and, uh, of day to, to answer any dumb questions or things like that. But even just spending that little time in the, in the chow line, you know, kind of helped me learn one or two things that I could take on into my career later on, you know, and, and not look like a fool, if you will. But um, every interaction we had, you know, learned something different, even if it was just a quick hello, you learned how to talk to other troops, you know, what motivated them. If that makes me feel good when I become, you know, a, a sergeant, NCO, the higher ranking I go, you know, those are the things that I want to emulate. Those are the things that I want to do. And even if you were just one person, you know, if you if multiple people do that, multiple leaders keep doing that, it grows in you. Right. It, it stays inside you. And I think that's how, you know, you create uh, uh, better leaders. So, you know, thank you for 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 those um, those moments, those small moments that you probably don't remember because you did them every day, um, you know, multiple, multiple times with the hundreds uh, 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 thousands of, of troops you commanded over the, the 38 years, you know, but uh, I'm pretty sure there's a, a ton of other people like me that remember the meeting you for the first time or just running into you. So you definitely made it memorable. Well, thank you. I, that, that, that validation verifies my existence <laughs> and uh, what I, what I thought I was doing. Thank you. Yeah. And then I don't know thank how we ran into each other on Facebook, but we, we must have the, know the same people obviously from being uh, uh, our time in buka and and eventually we just connected and we became friends on facebook and like i said we we've only ran into each other or talked in person those few times uh while we were in iraq uh, but you know um being back since then that was 2005 uh we've pretty much only known each other on on facebook and it interacted a few times and everything so um, you know, I, obviously I'd like to stay in touch and, you know, eventually maybe one day have like some kind of reunion or whatever. And, you know, cause it, it's a, it's a shame that the only times we've ever seen eye to eye was, uh, during, a during the, a war zone. So, and back, being back yeah. in the States at home, you know, so I don't know, we'll, we'll have to think of something, we'll have to get a bunch of people together or something, maybe do a, a buccaneer as you call them gathering, 
uh, of some sort. <laughs> that would be cool. I, I would love that. That would be cool. That would be really neat. But and you know, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, folks who know where I live, when they're traveling up and down the East Coast, they they have come to my little village here on on the Chesapeake Bay to visit me. Uh, I, so so anybody can drop in. The place is always open, and uh, and uh, yeah. You still have a Here no salute, you still have a no saluting zone. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I and, and well, I got a nice twenty four foot long porch here, and, and, and the cigars are available. That's perfect. So as long as you greet me the same way you always greeted us in 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 Iraq, you know, with the, with an awesome little cadence, you know, we love it here. We like it here. Oh, we yeah. finally found our home. Then then <laughs> yes. then I'm there. But listen, uh, Big Bird. Uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your, your leadership, your knowledge, uh, and your willingness to share with all of us and to share the, the stories, you know, some, some awesome stories, some funny stories, and, you know, some, some not so great stories, you know, obviously what happened in yeah. 9-11 and what happened to, you know, uh, Elizabeth and, and Steve and, and, and them and, you know, but we'll always remember them. We'll always have them in our, in our memories. And I'm glad we could at least share that, that knowledge with, with other folks and, and have that in common that, you know, something we all went through uh, and we can appreciate, you know, especially right now, times are a little weird, times are different. And, um, yeah. you know, it's always good to remember those, those people that sacrifice so that there could be, idiots on the street doing the things that they do freely because of people that that put their lives on the line and you know for our freedoms so i'm glad we share that in common um we do we do indeed yes it's in our hearts well once again uh colonel austin schmidt uh aka big bird uh appreciate you being on the show sharing your knowledge with us uh we will definitely do this again thank you Roger that, Bucanair. Love you guys. Have you all heard of Valor's Veterans Community AZ? Let me tell you about them. They are a 501c3 nonprofit which helps organize social gatherings and volunteer opportunities for veterans and their families. VVC was created in 2018 by our good friend, Ro Gonzalez. You may have heard him on this show before. Uh, this guy's awesome, man. He's got the hookup to all sorts of sporting events, movie premieres, and all kinds of cool shit. Bringing like-minded people together not only allows everyone to share resources, but also helps reconnect that bond military members had while they were still in the service. VVC AZ also holds a monthly coffee social the third Saturday of every month where local organizations can share their resources. Their goal is to build Arizona's strongest veteran community by engaging veterans one at a time. Please check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and ValorsVeteransCommunityAZ.org.